Well, you can take out your notebooks and flip them over. Let's remind ourselves why we get up at 5.15 or maybe 6.50. I don't know what time you guys got up on a Saturday morning to come to Wellspring. So this ministry called Wellspring exists to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. What is the gospel purpose of the church? You can just listen to me as I read Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we have been given pastors and teachers, and we've been given the writings of the apostles in order to be equipped for the work of ministry, in order to be built up through mutual sharpening of being members together in one body, which is Christ, until we all attain to maturity in Christ. Verse 16 said that this building up takes place when each part is working properly. So Wellspring exists so that each of us as individuals are able to function properly as members of Christ's body so that we can reach maturity or Christ-likeness together. So that's the purpose. Let's remind ourselves of the disciplines that we employ to that end. We always start with shepherding the inner person of the heart. Another way we can say this is that we are shepherding our minds, shepherding our wills, shepherding the invisible part of ourselves. Discipline one, she prays, I'm sorry, she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Listen again to 2 Corinthians, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 10.3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. There is a war going on in our minds due to our flesh and due to the presence of the Holy Spirit as well, dwelling in us as believers. We should not trust our natural impulses, our thoughts, or our feelings. We need to put our hearts before God's word so that we're able to see where we're thinking in a way that is contrary to God's truth or even where we are feeling in a way that is contrary to God's truth. Oh, thank you. Maybe it's the, the latte. Okay. If we are going to be transformed and have renewed minds, we must put God's word in our hearts so that we can think God's thoughts instead of our natural, self-centered, self-glorifying thoughts. This first discipline is how we can put into practice 2 Corinthians 10. We can only destroy the arguments from our flesh and the lofty opinions raised up against the knowledge of God by taking our thoughts captive 
and choosing to have thoughts that obey Christ. We need God's word to penetrate our hearts. Because of that need, we prayerfully come to meet with God in his word, remembering the good news that Jesus has purchased a sinner, you and me, with his blood. Discipline two, the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. To minister means to give service, care, or aid to attend to. We serve and attend to those in our household with a heart that's been made new and with a heart that loves our Savior and the good news. Because we are aware of how God has been merciful to us and how he is ever patient and ever with us, we will be better able to honor him and display the gospel's effect on a life by how we live with and serve those in our homes. Proverbs 31:26 is, I'm going to read this one, you can listen. It's just a little piece of um, the picture of a God-fearing woman from Proverbs 31. It says, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Isn't that what we would like to be? Someone who opens her mouth to counsel a roommate, and wisdom comes out. Someone who opens her mouth to encourage her husband, and wisdom comes out. Someone who opens her mouth to teach, train, or correct her child, and wisdom comes out. So it's just clear that Discipline 2 starts with and can only happen after Discipline 1 has been taking place and is in effect. Wisdom, kindness, and the gospel will come out of our mouths when we have been prayerfully feeding our souls with God's word and putting it into practice. Discipline 3, ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And this time, listen to 1 Timothy 5, 9 to 10. This is a list of character qualities that Paul instructed Timothy to use to help determine what kind of widow should be helped financially by the church if she did not have a family to take care of her. It says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. As we take care of our hearts and minister to those within our homes, we need to lift our eyes up and out to others that God may want us to serve and to care for as we live on this earth. We get to care for others. Um, we've been each gifted with God's grace that we are to use to serve and to care for our spiritual brothers and sisters. And again, this type of ministry and service will be gospel-centered and Christ-exalting as long as we are continuing to take care of our inner person with God's word and by obedience to Christ. As we are faithful to spiritually care for and serve the people closest to us, those in our households, we will be able to serve and spiritually care for others outside of our home with integrity. Okay, so those are disciplines, and I think you guys all have a handout for today. from us. 
to see them as a person who, like us, was born into a world of sin. We can identify with them and that they were born into a setting that they didn't pick but was chosen for them. And yet this person, like us, was born into a world that experiences much of God's grace and provision. It's interesting to see what shapes a person and to learn why they make the choices that they did. Have you ever read a biography and then become intrigued by a side character in that person's life? And has that then led you to pick up a biography on the side character? (laughs) The book of 1 Samuel is mostly about Saul and David, Israel's first two kings. And there's a significant character in this book. His name is Samuel. He was the last of the judges. He was a godly man. He experienced favor with God and man. And God spoke to him and God worked through him for a long time. Samuel was the one who led the nation in feasts and offerings to God. He anointed Saul to be the first king. He prayed for Israel as a nation, and he warned them about selecting a human king. He was the one who passed on God's word of um, condemnation to Saul, letting Saul know that God was taking away the kingship from him and from his family line. Samuel was also the one who anointed David to be the king after Saul. And at the end of Samuel's life, the people of Israel had nothing bad to say about him. The only charge they could lay against him was that he, um, that his sons were not just. Samuel had appointed his sons as judges, and they were taking bribes, and it says they were not walking in Samuel's ways. So Samuel was a good leader in a rough time, and he stands in sharp contrast to Eli, who was the preceding spiritual ruler. He wasn't a, you know, he didn't have an office necessarily as ruler. He was a priest. But he was the previous spiritual leader in Israel, and he stands in contrast to Eli's sons, who were not godly men. And Samuel also stands in contrast to the pro, uh, yeah, proceeding leader, which was Saul. So this morning, we're going to meet a side character in Samuel's biography. There is a woman behind this man, and it is Hannah, his mother. So I called the title of this lesson, as you can see there, The Holy Spirit's Biography of Hannah. And then I had to just pick a few words to describe her. There's a lot of words. I, I have so much respect for her after studying this. There are so many words that I could use to describe her, and I had to like, limit it. And so I picked four that just seemed to like rise to the top. Um, I said that she is exemplary in humility, in prayerfulness, love, and faith. And so we're going to break this up into four sections. The first section is kind of the setting of her biography, and I called this <coughs> Hannah's Hardship. And then the second section is where she's in the temple and praying, and I've just called this Hannah's humility. Then we're going to take a break, and then we're going to do the um, next two sections, which is Hannah's homework for an homage to Yahweh, and then we'll talk about the fruit of Hannah's life, and call that Hannah's harvest. So let's pray, and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for... um, providing for us exactly what we need. God, we, um, whenever we come to your word, we know that um, you are the one that's on display. God, I pray that all of us would um, see you as we're opening up these two chapters in 1 Samuel. I pray that, God, we would see you for who you are, um, that we would be encouraged by someone who is your servant and someone who is your instrument. And I pray, God, that we would just take away from this what you would have each of us in our own different walks take away what we each need. I pray that we'd be encouraged where we need courage, uh, that we'd be convicted where we need to turn and repent, um, turn away from something. 
And I pray, God, that most of all, we would just be um, more in love with you because we get to see you. And I pray, God, that um, our hearts, which are dull and um, just unworthy of even being able to love you, but that they would. We pray, God, that you would enable us um, because you've already loved us first to love you back and to love you more. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Okay, so if you've already turned to First Samuel 1, we're going to read the first eight verses, and we're going to just see Hannah's setting, but before we jump into her specific setting, let's talk a little bit about the general setting in which we find Hannah. Hannah lives in the time of the Judges, you guys probably remember the last book, or the last verse in the book of Judges says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's already a dismal setting to be in. So let's just remember a couple of the stories from um, the book of Judges. There was a young man named Micah. Do you remember this boy? He stole money from his mom. It's a good start. And he made a metal image with that. And then he built a shrine for the image. And then he decided, oh, I think I need my own priest. So he found some Levite and set him up as the priest at his own house. And so he has sort of this strange Yahweh slash pagan idol worship going on at his home. Um, Then the people of Dan, there's a big group of them, are just kind of wandering through Israel looking for a a place to live. And I I don't know the background on this completely. I didn't get, did they not receive land originally? Were they not happy with where they were at? But anyway, they're going through Israel looking for a place to land, and they come across Micah's house, and they see his Levite, they see his household gods and this metal image he made, and that's kind of cool. So they just take it, and they go off to what the Bible says is this, a quiet and unsuspecting town, and they burn it down and build it back up. So all the people were killed in this town. They build it back up. That's where they live and set up Micah's image. And then Micah at some point comes to them and says, well, why did you take my stuff? And he said, don't ask us that question if you want to live. So he had to just leave. So there's no repercussions. They just got to do that. I mean, it's just a scary time. There's no accountability for these people um, and what they're doing. So um, there was, oh, the other story. But I, I do not like this story. But it's the one with the Levite and his wife or concubine leaves him, and then he goes to find her at her dad's house, and then he's taking her home. And he's making sure that they only stay in towns that belong to Israelites. I guess, for safety purposes. And then he ends up in this town called Gibeah. It's in the tribe of Benjamin. And the men of the town rush the house and say, send out your guest, you know, just so we can molest him. And he said no. So he puts out his wife. And um, so they molest her. She dies. And in the morning, he opens the door, and there she is, dead. And he puts her on the donkey and sends out pieces of her body to all 12 tribes of Israel, saying, can you believe how horrible this tribe is? And... Um, Anyway, all these things happen. Eventually, it gets to the point where I think they had sort of a war with Benjamin, and they say, we're not going to let anyone, any of our daughters marry anyone from Benjamin. And then everyone feels sad. Oh, now the tri- there's a tribe in Israel that's going to be annihilated. Well, we better let them have wives. So they let them steal, like just take off these girls that are in a party. Mm-hmm. Um, just go grab a girl, and you can just have her for a wife. And we'll tell the dads, just don't, 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 don't go get her. You know, just we got to let them have some wives. So... That's the environment and the culture in which Hannah lives. So in terms of scripture or revelation, 
Hannah had the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are, um, Moses had written those books. Then also, they would have had Joshua. Joshua wrote down, he wrote the book of Joshua, and then he stuck it at the end of the Pentateuch. So that's the revelation that she has access to. Highly unlikely that she would have had access to that in her own house. It would have just been, she would have been able to hear it um, when she would go to the temple. Um, we know from 1 Samuel 3 that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, so there was not a lot of prophecy going on, and visions were not frequent. So that's the general setting. Let's go ahead and read this together, just the first eight verses. <coughs> there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to Yahweh of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of Yahweh. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because Yahweh had closed her womb. So it went on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of Yahweh, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Okay, so how many characters did you notice in this introduction? There is Hannah's husband and Hannah's um, rival wife, her husband's second wife, Penina. There's Eli, the priest, and his two sons. And then Hannah's, I'm sorry, Penina's sons and daughters. So we first get information on Hannah's husband. He is a Levite. His name is Elkanah. Now, it does say that he lives in Ephraim. Um, he is not from the tribe of Ephraim. He's actually from the tribe of Levi. And as you probably remember, the Levites were not given a land inheritance. The Lord was their inheritance. But they were allotted portions of land in other parts of Israel and other tribes in which they could live and farm. Um, so at certain times, they would go to the temple or the tabernacle to serve. It might be three weeks. That's what I, I, I think it could I don't think there's like a specific time, but it might just be three to 12 weeks a year, they would go and serve there. So they would either do some sort of maintenance on the building or take care of the instruments used in worship, or they would lead singing. We see in First Chronicles 6, there's um, a line, a lineage for Elkanah. You see his ancestors and his descendants, and some of his descendants were um, song leaders during the time of Solomon. And then we can infer from the order in which the wives are listed that Elkanah had married Hannah first. And since she was unable to conceive children, it seems that he married Penina. This was common in their culture because of the importance placed on passing on a name and passing on land to children. But this was not God's plan for marriage, and it never has been. From the beginning, God set up marriage to just include a husband and a wife. And in Genesis 2, we see the first marriage. God instructed that a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, singular. The word is singular, and the example with Eve is singular. 
two should become one flesh. Then in Jesus' earthly ministry, when he taught about marriage, he reiterated that truth. He said, from the beginning, so we've known this all the way through, um, God made it known that he created male and female, and that the two should become one flesh, and they're not to be separated unless it's by death. So the math is simple, the two become one. And then we have extra, you know, we have more in the New Testament. We know in the New Testament that an elder or a, um, really a godly man should be a one-woman man. So even though polygamy has never been God's design for marriage, it was somewhat common in the Old Testament. And I say somewhat because really only the men who were moderately wealthy could do this. Um, It was expensive to even have extra wives. So that's why I usually see kings that have the multiple wives. And it was probably common among pagans too, probably even more so among the pagans. So it's just something that was more common, so maybe it wasn't quite as distasteful to them as it is to us. And that just made me think, I wonder if there's something, you know, that we know is wrong that isn't as distasteful to us because it's so common, you know, that, you know, it should be more distasteful. So this is the reality that we find her in. She is the wife, the first wife of Elkanah, and he married another woman to bear children. We also see that Elkanah is a faithful worshiper of Yahweh, and he leads his entire household in this worship. They lived anywhere from 10 to 25 miles away from Shiloh. Shiloh is the town where the tabernacle is located. And I'm kind of interchanging the word tabernacle and temple because the tabernacle was the tent that the Israelites moved with. They carried it around with them as they moved in the desert. So then they set it up, and I think they started building more permanent buildings kind of attached to it. And I think they call that the temple. So I'm calling it at this point. But anyway, the importance of the tabernacle or the temple is that the Ark of God was in there. And so that is where the specific presence of God was located in Israel. And according to the law, that's the location where they needed to go three times a year for feasts and for offerings to the Lord. Only the men were required to go, but this entire family faithfully goes. And we can just infer that this is due to Elkanah's leadership. Elkanah would offer to the Lord sacrifices and then he'd worship, and then he would eat with his family, as the law prescribed. He would give portions to everyone, and then to Hannah, he would give double. So there's a lot of evidence in this biography of genuine love and affection between Elkanah and Hannah. Elkanah loves Hannah, and his love is expressed in actions and in words. He gives double to her, which is his action. He's showing her honor, and he also uses words. He tries his best to comfort her and to help her in her distress. He also seems to respect her as a godly woman and trust her decisions. We'll see that later on in the passage. And even though Hannah wants so desperately to have children, there's no evidence that Hannah is angry with her husband or God for her circumstances. Neither does she revile Elkanah for marrying Penina, at least as far as we can see in Scripture. Rival wives occur other times in Scriptures. One example is Sarah and Abraham and Hagar. And Sarah, it was her idea for Abraham to marry, to have Hagar as a second wife, to have a child. And then she is the one who becomes bitter against Abraham and Hagar, and it's understandable. Um, However, um, we don't see Hannah responding in this way. It wasn't right for Elkanah to do this, but um, Hannah demonstrates humility and an ability to love her husband in spite of his poor decision. It was a poor decision that cost her greatly in her daily life. 
There is a sweet love, though, between these two, amazingly, in spite of their circumstances. So next we see that Penina is not only fertile, but she is feisty. She especially liked to irritate Hannah whenever they would go up to worship God. And it may have been because when they went up to worship, that's when the love between Elkanah and Hannah was so evident to her. You know, he's giving her double. Or it could be that um, there was a unity in the two, in the husband and wife, when they were worshiping Yahweh that Penina didn't share in. So whatever the motive, we know that Penina was just relentless in her goading of Hannah. The Bible said that she would provoke Hannah grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Not only was she just relentless in her mocking and um, just picking at her, she picked something that Hannah was totally not in control of. She, it was something she had no, no, no way to change, and that's what Penina was picking at. She was causing excessive sorrow. And that went on year after year, feast after feast, time of worship after time of worship. So what is the result of this setting? Hannah, who was barren but loved, living with a second wife and her children, mocked and provoked by her, desiring greatly to be a mother, verse 7 says, therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. There were laws about not participating in the feast of the Lord if you're in mourning. So it could be that Hannah didn't want to participate in celebrating peace with God um, when her heart was so distressed. Or it could be that she was just so upset that she physically just didn't feel like eating and um, couldn't do it. This feast was intended to be a joyful time, a time to rejoice in one's peace with God that he granted through sacrifice. And Elkanah is sad to see her so distressed, so he tries to encourage her. And it even could be that he was making a gentle rebuke to her, just with just saying, look, I love you so much. I mean, there's nothing we can do to change this. They know they can't open her womb on their own. But they do have each other, and he loves her greatly. And I'm going to read this slowly. Matthew Henry, I read his commentary on 1 Samuel 1 and 2, and it was good. I, I want to read his words because I like the words that he chose, but they're old words. So I'm going to try to read slowly so you can get the most out of it. Our sorrow, he writes, upon any account is sinful and inordinate when it diverts us from our duty to God and embitters our comfort in him. When it makes us unthankful for the mercies we enjoy and distrustful of the goodness of God to us and further mercies. When it casts a damp upon our joy in Christ and hinders us from doing the duty and taking the comfort of our particular relations. Then he quotes Elkanah, Am I not better to thee than ten sons? Thou knowest thou hast my entire affection, and let that comfort thee. And then this is Matthew Henry again. Note, we ought to take notice of our comforts to keep us from grieving excessively for our crosses. For our crosses we deserve, but our comforts we have forfeited. If we would keep the balance even, we must look at that which is for us, as well as that which is against us. Else we are unjust to providence with a capital P and unkind to ourselves. God has set the one over against the other, Ecclesiastes 7.14, and so should we. So in other words, our sorrow must be seen to be inordinate or excessive when it keeps us from obeying God and keeps us from taking comfort in him. God is the God of comfort. We know that from 1 Corinthians. And we need to repent from any sorrow that keeps us from taking comfort in him. It's only to our joy that we trust the goodness of God in the midst of our sorrow. Matthew Henry instructs us to take notice of our comforts because that will keep us from grieving excessively. 
he cites Ecclesiastes 7.14, which says that God has made the day of prosperity as well as the day of adversity. So Hannah, to her credit, accepts Elkanah's words of comfort. They may or may not have actually been. Grace, humility, and love cause us to take comfort from those who love us and intend to comfort us, even if it's not exactly what we want to hear or how we want to be comforted. And after her husband talked to her and tried to comfort her with his love, she chooses to eat and drink with him. Instead of wallowing in any pity or trying to make him feel bad, um, she made a choice with her will, and that choice flowed out of the godly character of her inner person. Okay, so we understand the setting of Hannah's biography. Let's move on to the next section, which is um, verses 9 to 20, and I've just called this Hannah's humility. We've... um, up to now, we've seen the Holy Spirit's descriptions of Hannah. So look for um, some autobiographical material in the next section. We're going to see a little bit of where Hannah describes herself. We get to see her own interpretation of her situation, and I think that's interesting. And then also just try to notice what she is like after she prays when she's in the temple. Okay. Let's see, verses 9 to 20. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Yahweh of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before Yahweh. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and Yahweh remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So first off, we've already noted that Hannah exemplified humility in her choice to eat and drink with the family in the feast to Yahweh. As soon as she is done eating and drinking, Hannah leaves. And I can imagine her almost just running out to go pray. We see that Eli, the priest, is sitting in the temple. He's overseeing the affairs that are going on in terms of worship. Um, The Holy Spirit tells us that Hannah was deeply distressed And she was praying to Yahweh and weeping bitterly. Can you identify with Hannah? Can you identify with being deeply distressed, weeping bitterly and crying out to your maker, knowing that only he can give you the comfort and the help that you're seeking? Two verses come to mind um, when I imagine this scene and the emotions that are probably raging within Hannah. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, which says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then the first Peter 5 of the Old Testament, Psalm 55, 22. 
Cast your burden on Yahweh, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Hannah is casting her burden on the Lord. And then, did you notice Hannah's description of herself? She says she's afflicted. She calls herself Yahweh's servant when she prays three times. Um, She says, when she talks to Eli, that she is um, a woman who is troubled in spirit. She's not been drinking. She could barely eat before, so here she is. She's not been drinking. Um, she's the one, she's been pouring out her soul before the Lord. She's one who's been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. And then again, she says she's a servant. This time she says she's Eli's servant. So Hannah's view of herself is that she's weak, she's troubled, she's distressed, she's unable to do anything about her situation except to pray and pour her heart out. Um, she doesn't see herself as um, looking at God as her servant, she actually is his servant. So she's actually in a pretty undesirable situation according to the wisdom of the world and natural man, but she's in the best state when it comes to spiritual matters. God does not despise a broken and a contrite heart. One commentator wrote, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he delights to use for his next act. When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. And that was Dale Ralph Davis, the commentator that I just quoted. So there's some encouragements we can take away immediately from this biography of Hannah. God used the intentional, mean-spirited provocation of Penina as well as Hannah's own bareness to drive Hannah to desperate prayer. Her heart was in agony, and she knew of only one recourse, and that was prayer. She cast herself upon Yahweh and poured her soul out to him. Not only can you and I most likely identify with Hannah in this agony and brokenness, but there is someone who can identify perfectly and to an even greater degree. Notice the parallel with Jesus. Jesus was in agony of spirit when he was in the garden before he was arrested, Luke twenty two forty four says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Hannah's agony of heart, or our own, certainly can't be put on the same level as Jesus' agony over the anticipation of bearing sin and its just punishment. But we can be encouraged that our sympathetic Savior knows what it's like to be in agony of spirit. It led Jesus to pray more earnestly. And if that's what he did, that's certainly what we need to do. That's what Hannah did. Then also notice the specific requests that Hannah makes of Yahweh. Verse 11 is actually a vow that she's making. She's saying, Lord, um, if you give me this, then I'm going to promise something back to you. So she asks three things of Yahweh. The first thing she asks is that Yahweh would look on her affliction. It's like she's saying, Lord, I know you know all and you see everything, and I can make an appeal to your mercy and loving kindness and ask you to notice and look on my affliction. It's hard for me, and it's heavy. Please look at this and see my broken heart. And then secondly, she asked that Yahweh would remember her and not forsake her, or not forget her. Please remember me, your servant. I am yours. I belong to you, and my role is to serve you. I don't see you as my genie in the bottle or as my servant. I am yours, and I'm asking you to remember me and not forget me in light of what's troubling my heart. And thirdly, she asked specifically for a son. She doesn't ask for many children. She asks for one. She would be happy with just one. 
She prays specifically for a son because she wants to be able to raise a son up who can serve God and belong to Yahweh's service in a special way for the entirety of his life. That would be joy to her. She would love to have a child whom she could love and train and then give back to God. She promises that she would give him back to Yahweh and that she would keep him under a Nazarite vow the whole of his life. Verse 12 says that Hannah continued praying before Yahweh. So there's more that Hannah was praying privately to the Lord than what is recorded. We can just imagine and fill in what we think she might have been praying and asking for. Um, We don't know exactly what was coming out of her heart, but we do know that Hannah has confidence in God's ability and willingness to hear her prayer. It is according to his character to hear the prayer of the humble and the destitute and to take notice of hearts that are wholly his. She belongs to God and she trusts him and she feels the freedom to ask for the deepest desire of her heart. So Eli sees her mouth moving, Um, he doesn't hear any words, and he assumes the worst. And he's very wrong. Eli's assumption is understandable when we consider the way that sin was abounding and the way it was manifested in that culture and even maybe even especially in the temple. His sons were not godly men. They had no regard for the Lord. Um, It says that they didn't know him. It was kind of like, you know, we're priests and we're just here. And they would would take things by force. Um, People would bring in an an offering or a sacrifice. And you know how it says the fat is the Lord's. It was supposed to be burned offers. They would just take it by force and just say, this is ours. And we know Eli was large. One commentator said, I mean, it seems like they were gorging themselves on people's offerings that they were bringing into the temple. So they just disregarded, had disregard for the Lord. Not only in terms of the sacrifices and the offerings, but his sons were sexually immoral with women who came into the temple to worship. It may have been under the guise of worship, or maybe they're just mixing in pagan practices with the way they think they should worship Yahweh. So in some ways, you know, it's understandable that Eli is suspicious of Hannah and would assume the worst about her, but he's not off the hook. And I think there's a good reminder for us here. Proverbs 18:13 says that if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And Eli indeed acted foolishly. He rebuked Hannah and he was completely wrong. But here again, we get to see the grace and the humility that reside in Hannah's heart. Hannah could have looked at her situation this way. She could have made a list of all the horrible things that were going, you know, her way, not going her way. So she's been unjustly provoked by the second wife that her husband took um, for years. And it's over something she has no control over. She wants to be a mom, and month after month, she's reminded that she's not, and that she can't be, at least for another month, you know, and it's, that's discouraging. And here she is, um, you know, feasting with her family, and then her husband probably very gently and lovingly sort of rebukes her, just saying, okay, let's not be excessive in our sorrow, I love you. And even a gentle, loving rebuke can have a sting that you could choose to feel sorry for yourself over. Um, And then she could have thought, okay, and here I am just trying to pray and pour my heart out before the Lord. And the spiritual leader in Israel is coming to me and accusing me of something that's like not even close to what's right and going on. However, um, instead of snapping at Eli and feeling sorry for herself, um, uh, she didn't do that. There are things that she could have said to Eli, actually, that lots of people knew that would have actually been valid. um, But she didn't throw that in his face, or say anything about that. Um, We only see evidence of grace and humility that reside in her heart, Um, even though it's broken and grieving. 
you know, she's in a dark hour. We talk about what's in your cup, like what's in your heart. When you get bumped, whatever's in that cup that you're holding, when you get bumped, that's what comes out. And here she is in her darkest, well, maybe not darkest, but a dark hour. And when she gets bumped, um, there's not bitterness and anger. Um, her humility toward Eli is actually very sweet. One of the books I read on Hannah said, um, when we are unjustly censored, we need to set a double watch before the door of our lips. So Hannah did not repay evil for evil. Um, she did vindicate herself. She accurately gives an account of herself to Eli in order to correct his misconceptions. She did it so sweetly and so transparently that Eli seems to be moved from one end of an impression about her to the actual opposite end of an impression. So she tells him that she hasn't been drinking, um, she's troubled in spirit, and so she's here pouring out her soul before the Lord, and she's speaking out of anxiety and vexation, and she calls herself Eli's servant. She sees him as an authority, and she honors him in that role, and then she speaks to him according to the respect that she has for his position. And notice that Hannah doesn't feel the need to tell her tale of woe to anyone other than Yahweh. She doesn't take this opportunity um, to tell Eli specifically what she's been asking God for in order that he can pray with her. Um, it's not wrong to have other people pray for us. I know that that would be my tendency to tell it, but um, she knows that she's left her request with Yahweh, with the only one who can do anything about her situation, and it just demonstrates where her faith is placed. Um, she doesn't seem to lay the burden of her unmet desires on her husband or on Eli, and it just shows her trust in the Lord, her faith, and, and her humility. Okay, so back to the story. Eli, to his credit, is not really defensive in explaining himself to, to Hannah and you know why he made such a horribly wrong rebuke. He just seems to turn 180 degrees, and he basically gives an amen to her prayer. And it's a prayer that he doesn't know the specific details of, but he does seem to be convinced, convinced that the woman who's making this appeal to Yahweh is humble and godly. And he truly believed her to be innocent of the, man, the matter that he had rebuked her for. And so he said, so be it, to her prayer, and he hoped that God would answer it. So now we're to the part that I find so encouraging. Hannah leaves the temple and says she ate, and her face was no longer sad. Was Hannah pregnant? No. Was she certain that God was going to allow her to conceive? I don't think so. And this is encouraging because we know it's possible to have joy without the desires of our heart being met. We can cast our cares on the Lord and walk away with a joyful countenance. It's possible. Matthew Henry, in his commentary again, writes, Hannah believed that God would either give her the mercy she had prayed for or make up the want of it to her some other way. So she didn't have a promise that Yahweh was indeed going to give her what she prayed for. I don't think that Eli's reaffirmation of her prayer was um, like a special revelation or something that she could bank on. Um, it doesn't say anything about that. Um, her countenance changed because she had poured her heart out and her soul out to the Lord, and she trusted him and knew that he would do what is right. So the next morning, the family rises early to worship before the Lord, and then they went back home to Ramah. And it seems that right away, Hannah experiences answers to her prayer. Verse 19 says that Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It's exactly the same word from her prayer. She asked Yahweh to remember her, and he did. He knows the details of our lives. He sees it all. He remembered Hannah, and she conceived. 
that she had a son, the son that she had asked for. And what did she name him? She gave him a name that would remind her every time she called him to her, every time she said it, that God had heard her prayer. She named him Samuel, which means, I have asked for him from Yahweh. Samuel's name would also be a reminder to Samuel himself of the prayer that his mom had made for him before he was even created. And it would remind him of her dedication of him to Yahweh for all the days of his life. One of the commentators that I read gave a little personal account of his life when he was a a boy. He was from a family of five boys. He was the youngest, and he said his family was pretty consistent in family worship. His dad would lead it. And every now and then, his dad would travel for work, and so his mom would lead it. He said, I always half-dreaded the days that my mom would lead family worship. And he said the reason was she would read the word, and then she'd pray for each of us boys by name specifically. And so just go down the list. And he said to hear his mom, his mom's heart expressed in prayer um, to the Lord for each of them, knowing that they were hers, but there was nothing she wanted more for them than that they belong to the Lord just moved him so much that he was often in tears, and he was the last one, and he said he hated to have tears in his eyes for his brothers to see at the end. Um, But what a gift to have a mom that wants nothing more for her child than that he or she belong wholeheartedly to the Lord and who prays to that end. All right, ladies, so we're going to start with the third section. So far, we've seen Hannah's biography. Um, I mean, in her biography, we've seen the setting, which is her hardship. We've seen her humility on display in her prayers and in her interactions with um, the Lord, with Eli, with her husband, even in the name that she gives her son. So now we're going to see her heart expressed in her work at home as a mother for the first three years of Samuel's life. And then we'll see her give honor to and homage to the Lord when she goes back to the temple with Eli to present him. So we're in the homework section and the homage section. So um, let's just read chapter 1, verses 21 to 28 together. This is just a little picture of her work at home. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to Yahweh the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may Yahweh establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped Yahweh there. So Hannah has given birth to Samuel, and now it is time to go up to Shiloh and offer sacrifices before the Lord and to feast before Yahweh. And also we know that Elkanah had a vow that he needed to pay before the Lord as well. It's possible that Elkanah had made a vow in case his beloved wife, Hannah, had a child, and now he was about to fulfill his end of the vow. Um, But Hannah tells Elkanah she is not going to go up this time, but she's going to stay home until she's weaned Samuel. Elkanah trusts her decision and her resolve, and here's another window into their marriage. 
there is mutual trust and respect between these two. The Old Testament law, um, in the Old Testament law, a woman's vow to Yahweh could be canceled by her husband if he didn't agree with it. And obviously, Elkanah was in agreement with Hannah's vow that she'd made on her own in the temple before Samuel was born. So Elkanah just says, do what seems best to you, only may Yahweh establish his word. That phrase troubled me. Not troubled me, I just was like, what does that mean? You know, Did he have some extra revelation from the Lord? Did God speak to them? Um, most of the commentators don't think that's what the don't think that was the case. Um, it was probably just Elkanah's way of saying, "May God keep Samuel safe through any of the dangers of infancy, so that this vow that Hannah made, which seems to be being answered by the Lord in the fact that He's given Hannah the son and and Elkanah the son, may God just um, keep." him safe so that this vow can come to fruition. It's not just that, oh, now her vow was answered, her prayer request was answered, she has a son. It hasn't come to fruition yet because he hasn't been presented to the Lord and lent to him. So Elkanah is probably just saying, may God um, keep him safe and may he be able to grow and be able to make the vow come to fruition. So Hannah's homework is very important to her. She most likely nursed Samuel until he was three years old. She had a short time to take care of him and to hold him and to enjoy him and train him. She wanted to make the most of the time that she had and not leave him with anyone else to nurse him while she left to go to Shiloh to worship. Now, I'm not really sure why she couldn't just take him with her. I mean, I think that's what we all think, like, just take the baby with you. But... <laughs> Everything I read, like, that wasn't even an option. It was like there were two options. One, she could leave him at home with servants, and someone else would nurse him, and she would go worship in Shiloh, or she would stay home and take care of him. So she obviously chose the latter. And all that we can observe concretely from the text is that during these three years, she made staying home and nursing Samuel her priority. We know that Samuel had to be prepared at home for what he was going to do with his life. Think about what kind of training must have been taking place so that a three-year-old boy is not left kicking and screaming and crying after his mom when he's dropped off at the temple. And he's not just being dropped off to be taken care of. He's being dropped off so that he can serve and help out. So I just I have to believe there was a lot of training going on regarding authority and obedience so that when Hannah's and Elkanah's authority over Samuel is now transferred to Eli, it's not a surprise to Samuel. He's prepared for it. He knows what he's about to do, or some of what he's supposed to do anyway. So Hannah was the first one to teach Samuel about the Lord. She was the one who directed his learning and his interest. She was intentionally preparing him for a lifetime of service to Yahweh. When it was time and Samuel was weaned, Hannah and Elkanah take Samuel along with sacrifice offerings to the temple in Shiloh. And there is no sense of sorrow or sadness in this scene. There's only joy and exaltation of God and a sense of amazement at God's kindness to them. This is where we see the greatest evidence that Hannah's desire for a child was not idolatrous. She was not asking just to get something that she wanted. Hannah herself was given to the Lord. Remember, she calls herself Yahweh's servant three times. She wanted the privilege of giving herself to a child in order to give that child back to Yahweh. And that just brings some questions to mind. Why do I, why do you, want to be a mom? What do I, what do you think motherhood is about? Am I passionate about motherhood for the reasons that Hannah was? 
And is my goal, is your goal in parenting to honor God and to affect the next generation for godliness by training children in the fear of the Lord for their own benefit as well as for others? This is what John MacArthur said about Hannah and her parenting in, her ser- in a sermon that he gave on 1 Samuel. A godly mother presents her child to God. When you bear a child, ladies, that child belongs to God as much as Hannah's child did. That child is a heritage from the Lord, not your own, but a treasure which you manage for his glory. A godly seed for which you are to influence society from the bottom up. Women don't need to be president. Women don't need to be congresswomen. Women don't need to be the head of corporations. Women don't need to run the church. All women need to do is raise godly children, and they'll affect society in a way they never could any other way. So Hannah presents Samuel to Eli, and as she calls it, lends him to Yahweh to dwell before God at the temple in Shiloh. This is where we see her give homage to God. She prays again, and we'll read this together in chapter 2, 1 to 10. And as I read it, just try to pay attention to notice what specifically Hannah knows about the Lord. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This time, Hannah's prayer is not silent, just between herself and God alone. It's a praise that's spoken, and it's meant to be heard. It is to Yahweh, and it's for the benefit of those who are near enough to hear. And we can add that who get to hear through scripture. She wants to give praise where praise is due. She says that her heart exalts, and that her strength is exalted in Yahweh. God has answered her prayer, and she who was without strength, who was desperate, unable, grieving, vexed, distressed, she has strength. But it's a strength that's been given to her from God. It's not her own. And then notice that the object of Hannah's praise is Yahweh, which seems obvious because it's a prayer, but um, she doesn't even mention Samuel. So there's not, Samuel's not the object of this praise. She seems to overlook the gift, and she just praises the giver. And I'm actually struck by the lack of mention of Samuel. Hannah didn't speak about how wonderful and smart and handsome this miracle baby was. She was just truly more in awe of God, the one who had given her the gift, than in awe of the gift itself. Matthew Henry writes, Every stream should lead us to the fountain. There may be other Samuels, but no other Yahweh. What does Hannah know about Yahweh? 
Well, she knows that there is no one who is completely holy, which means set apart. He is the only one. He's also a rock. That means he's stable and he's a protector. Hannah had found relief and comfort in that aspect of Yahweh. He is all-knowing or omniscient. Verse 5 says that Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and he weighs the actions of men. He sees into the heart, and he can observe the motives behind the actions. So because of that, there is no room for arrogant speech from the mouths of mere men. She knew that God is intimately knowledgeable of her heart, as well as every other human heart that existed. Then in the rest of her prayer, she talks about God in relation to different categories of people. There are positive categories, and there's negative categories, and even the ones that you might say are positive, they actually may be a negative. So she talks about the mighty, those who are full, those who have borne seven children, the wicked, and the adversaries of Yahweh. Then she talks about the feeble, the hungry, the barren, the needy, the poor, the faithful ones who belong to Yahweh. So there are people who are strong, who lack nothing in worldly comforts, who have all they've desired, but in a moment, Yahweh can change their situation. Um, it's just as easy for him to make the poor, the hungry, and the barren wealthy, full, and abounding with children as it is for him to take um, those who, are, who have everything and to, for it to be gone in a second. All these categories have one thing in common, that God is in control of their circumstances and can change their setting in a second according to his will. Yahweh kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. He makes rich and he makes poor. So regardless of our situation, we can be sure that we are in God's hands. We are not the masters of our own fate. The earth belongs to him and he's the one who sustains it and supports it. Then notice the personal comfort we can take in verse 9. It says, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. So no matter what situation or circumstance we find ourselves in, we can trust that the Lord is guarding our feet, which means he's protecting our way, our path that we're walking. It's for our good, because he's good, and because he's merciful. So he's in control of the circumstance, but that's not all. He's actually guarding and protecting our specific way for the ones that belong to him. As dismal as a situation may be, we can trust that God has not just dropped us into a hard situation without care. Um, he's actually protecting our specific path that we're walking. And this is actually not true for God's adversaries. He is not protecting their feet. He's in control of their circumstance, yes, but protecting their way, he's, he's not. So it's different. Um, those who are against him, their paths will be cut off in darkness. It's almost like their path, which is comfortable and strong and luxurious, it's like it just like hits into a wall, and it's just, there's utter darkness. Um, there's no place, I mean, they don't find themselves in any place but darkness and being broken in pieces, judged by Yahweh. Um, so Hannah knows that Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. She also knows that Yahweh will give strength to his king, which is an interesting reference because there is no king in Israel. Um, she has heard that there's a promised seed that was specifically promised to Eve, that there would be a seed that would set people free from Satan's tyranny. Um, she knows that from Moses, um, I can't remember, I can't remember which book it was in, but he says that the scepter will not pass from Judah. So she knows that there is a king that's going to come from the line of Judah that will reign forever. So she's looking forward to this promised king. And she also 
talks about God's anointed. Um, the English word Messiah that we have actually represents the Hebrew words that she uses here for anointed. And so she has some sense of looking forward to a king, looking forward to a Messiah. Hannah's prayer reveals a heart that's grounded in the knowledge of God's sovereign macro rule over the universe down to his micro rule over the circumstances of each individual. She knows that God is kind and that he's specially protective of his faithful ones as they live and move upon the earth. And he also has a long-term plan for all of human history, and it culminates in this anointed or this Messiah, the anointed king from Yahweh. Her love for God pours out of her prayer, and her humility again is on display. How could she be anything but humble with this view of God? Okay, so this last section, I've just kind of tagged on bits and pieces of Samuel's life because the fruit, the harvest of Hannah's life is seen in Samuel's life after he's been in her home. Samuel's godly influence over the whole nation is fruit that's produced by God. So though it's ultimately God who gets the credit, the sowing of the seeds and the watering of those seeds was Hannah's God-given work. Samuel's character and the life of ministry that he had is not a small thing. God used Samuel to set the foundation for a new stage in Israel's history. Samuel um, is a good transition between the judges and the kings. He's also the first one to occupy the office of prophet. Up till now, God had been speaking through people at different times, but he didn't just pick one person and, and speak through them consistently. And by that, I don't mean there was only one prophet at a time, but just that um, he would just speak through people kind of seemed randomly. It wasn't Obviously, it wasn't random. But now he's picked one person that he's speaking through over and over. Um, so look at verse 11, which I think in your outline was included in the previous section. I don't know. But we're going to include it here. We're just going to read the rest of what we see about Hannah, and we're going to read a little bit extra about Samuel. So verse 11 says, Then Elkanah went home from Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So again, we see the immediate fruit of Hannah's training and that Samuel was actually a blessing to have around the temple. Um, even as a three-year-old, he must have been obedient and able and willing to help with little, chore, little chores that were age-appropriate. Um, one book suggested that maybe he opened doors. He could probably retrieve things for Eli, for the other priest. Then we see after verse 11, there's a little section here about Eli's of Eli's worthless sons. So we read about them and what they're like, and then it goes on almost like in contrast. Okay, verse 16, now we're going to talk about Samuel. So we have Eli's sons, then go ahead and pick up in verse 16. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May Yahweh give you children by this woman for the person she, oh, I'm sorry, for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And that's the end of the biography of Hannah. That's the last we know about her. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And then you can go on down to verse 28, 26. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Okay, so chapters 3 through 12 fill in the rest of Samuel's life. 
Um, one of the best commendations of Samuel is that Yahweh was with him. The Bible says Yahweh was with him, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. So Samuel truly heard the words from God, and then he faithfully delivered them to the nation, or maybe to the specific individual, depending on who God wanted him to talk to. And he was faithful with that. Um, Samuel walked in the ways of Yahweh. He was trusted by the people, and that included Saul, the first king. Saul trusted him, and David trusted him. Saul didn't always do what Samuel said, what God had revealed to him that he needed to do, but he did trust him. And um, after Eli died, the priest, um, the Ark of the Covenant was taken. It was captured in a war. So then Shiloh no longer was the place where the presence of the Lord was dwelling, you know, in terms of the Ark. And so worship, I mean, things just got scattered at that point. But at that point, Eli, I don't know how old he was. It says he was a young man, but it was saying he was a young man earlier in the text when he was still a boy. So he was a young man, and he was at that point going around like a circuit where he'd go to like probably three or four different towns, and he would judge there. So he'd make decisions for the people and help them in um, just daily life, but he was also doing spiritual leadership in those places. He actually ended up, after that circuit, it said he would go back to Rama, which I thought was so neat. He went back to his hometown, and that's where he would stay. He actually built an altar there as well. So there was worship going on there, and he would judge from there. So it's possible, if Hannah was still alive, that he, she was able to enjoy a close, closer relationship with her son when he lived there. So the nation was in desperate need of godly leaders during Hannah's day. Her desire to see Yahweh exalted and to be a godly mother and to bear a son and train him and then give him to full-time service came to fruition after much heartache, disappointment, and affliction. The fires of affliction culminated in desperate prayer and purified Hannah's heart. This made her more fit to raise a godly son and to praise Yahweh publicly. She reaped a harvest and she bore fruit for God. The fruit of her life blessed her husband, it blessed her son, and I'm sure it blessed her subsequent children that she had. The fruit of her life blessed the nation of Israel as a whole, it blessed King David, and it even blesses us here in Tempe, Arizona in 2015. So we don't know how God will use our affliction or our lives, but we can trust him just as wholeheartedly as Hannah that he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. All right, so let's talk about some implications from Hannah's biography. There are many women who have poured their souls out to God in prayer. There are also many women who have experienced amazing answers to prayer, like Hannah, but only a handful, a few of them, have their stories included in Scripture. And I'm just so thankful that we have this little biography of Hannah included in the Bible. She is exemplary in so many ways. And she's like Daniel in that Dan with Daniel, there's not really any sin listed about him. Same thing with Hannah. I don't see anything specifically sinful in her story. Um, but I'm also thankful for the stories and the biographies of other women who weren't quite as exemplary as her. Um, Rachel, for example, also experienced barrenness. And Rachel's re request and her desire for children was not quite as humble or as selfless as Hannah's. She said to Jacob, not even to God, give me children or I die. So in each story, the character of God is on display. We see his mercy and faithfulness, but it's helpful to see the different responses various women had toward God in the midst of their circumstances. In the words of Romans 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. 
So I think the different stories are helpful because we see that God is always faithful to his character and to his children, regardless of our response. But our response to God affects our joy and our happiness in him. So everyone in the room can probably relate to at least one, probably more aspects of Hannah's life. Um, You can think of, are you living with affliction of some sort? Or maybe childlessness, not receiving something that we deeply desire. Um, Maybe being married to a man who loves God, but whose sinful decision is creating a difficult living situation. Raising a little one, desiring to see God glorified in your children's lives and in society. Um, Pouring out your soul to the Lord, worshiping him. Um, I think we can identify it in a few, at least one way with Hannah. So what would God have us women in 2015 take away from the story of an Israelite woman who lived thousands of years before us? Well, Hannah's faith in and her love for Yahweh are exemplary, and we would do well to follow her example with the help of God. At every turn in the story, Hannah just seems to be undistracted from following Yahweh and doing and being what she knows that he wants her to do and be. She doesn't seem to get distracted Uh, with the personal attacks by Penina. She's definitely upset by them, but it doesn't seem like she gets off focus and like starts looking at Penina and um, gets distracted with her as a person. What Penina is doing to her is hurtful and hard, but it seems like she just keeps focusing. Like her focus was, I want to go pray. I want to go be with the Lord. And then even when she's in the temple with Eli and he rebukes her for something unjustly, she doesn't get distracted by that and think about this guy, what a jerk. And just, (laughs) I can't believe he's saying this to me. It's just, Okay, he did that, but I'm still focused. I'm pouring out my heart to the Lord, and I'll, I'll tell him that. Mm-hmm. And then even when she receives part of the answer to her prayer, which is Samuel, she doesn't get distracted and just um, focus on Samuel and just, I'm so amazed. I can't believe this wonderful child. It was still, I love the Lord, and I do love this child, but her focus was still straightforward. Um, she loved the fountain of delights and the giver more than the gifts that he gave her. Her love for Yahweh is obvious in how she talks about him and in how she knows him when she prays aloud in the temple. So the first implication for us is to pursue a sincere devotion to and love for our Savior. It's our wellspring discipline number one. It seems to be Hannah's first priority as well. So be encouraged by Hannah's love for God in a time when revelation from God was less, in a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. There are dangers from outside of Israel, the other nations, like the Philistines, and there's internal dangers within the 12 tribes, and there is a lot of sexual immorality going on. Even the worship of Yahweh in the temple is not according to the law. It wasn't biblical, and it's mixed with pagan and just like naturally sinful practices. I would dare to say that the world Hannah lived in was more morally degenerate than the society that we live in, and her love for Yahweh shines like a bright light in the dark backdrop of her world. The other implication we can take away is the comfort and privilege of prayer. God has given us access to himself through Christ. We can come before his throne boldly because we are counted righteous, because Jesus has traded his righteousness for our condemnation. And since we have this privilege, we would be remiss to forego the comfort and the help we receive from pouring our soul out to the Lord. The third implication for our lives is that growing in humility is appropriate as well as beautiful. Hannah's name means grace, and grace is unmerited favor, which means it's something, receiving something that we don't deserve. 
Hannah's humility displayed itself in her ability to bestow grace on other people in her life. Um, she bestowed grace on people that were close to her, like Elkanah, and then to people that she probably didn't know quite as well, like Eli. Gracious behavior, by definition, is not dependent on another person's worthiness or kindness or respectability. I don't know what Hannah looked like, but I know she was beautiful. She was beautiful according to God's definition. God says that a beautiful woman has a gentle and quiet spirit, and that is, it's a spirit that's calm and still because it's trusting in God. It's not fretful and distrusting of God. Hannah did not have a lofty view of herself. She had a lofty view of God, though. She didn't just know about God. She knew God, and it's what produced humility in her. Okay, so I'm going to close just by reading Psalm 142, because, again, like Lori said, as I'm reading through Scripture and just studying Hannah, like, I see things. Like, if I see the word servant, I'm like, oh, this person saw themselves as God's servant, or, you know, noticing childlessness, or just all kinds of things. But I was reading Psalm 142, and I really thought... Hannah could have written this. It's written by David, um, and I just think it's a fitting conclusion for ending Hannah's biography. So I'll read Psalm 142. You can either follow along or you can just listen. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my ways. In the, pla- in the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for the ones who have gone before us, who know you, who have loved you, and um, God, we know they are not without sin, and obviously um, not without struggle or temptations. God, it's just encouraging to see someone who lived in a dark time in history and who faced a lot of the same temptations that we do who loved you, who knew you, and um, who was just given over to you. God, I pray that all of us in this room would be wholeheartedly seeking after you. I pray that you would use us in the different spheres of life where we find ourselves in our homes and in our church and in workplaces and school situations. I just ask God that um, we would be a light against the backdrop that we live in. Um, God, we pray this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.